so you were saying. It's <laughs> 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 an joke. Right. Today it is my great honor and joy to interview Mark Crispin Miller, who is a friend. In fact, Mark, uh, thanks to you, I know about propaganda. Because I remember many years ago, I met Mark, I just stumbled into Mark, and he told me about Edward Bernays and his work and, you know, your preface to the book. And I ordered the book and my life has not been the same ever since. Uh, speaking of propaganda, it is in your propaganda class that the thing happened that led to your lawsuit and all the groups. Yes. So oh, you want to talk about it? Well, I, I, uh, I've been teaching at NYU since 1997 media studies and uh, one course that I, I teach um, often is a course on propaganda which I don't approach as a kind of remote uh, historical phenomenon you know something that the Nazis did and the Bolsheviks did uh, maybe something that the Allies did in World War One uh, I mean we discuss all that background but as far as I'm concerned, the only appropriate way to study propaganda is to study it in real time, uh, to focus on propaganda drives that are either very recent or that are still ongoing. And this necessarily makes for a very challenging experience uh, because, you know, you, you ask anyone for an example of propaganda, and they will invariably uh, come up with something they don't agree with. So if you ask a liberal uh, what's propaganda, he or she will say Fox News, you know, Rush Limbaugh, Breitbart. You ask a conservative for an example of propaganda, and you'll get uh, MSNBC, NPR. Now, they're both right. But they're also both uh, taking a one-eyed view of propaganda. They cannot see the propaganda that they agree with. The propaganda that pushes their buttons, they don't see as propaganda. They see it as news, maybe entertainment. Um, so the real challenge here for any student in the course, and I have to say for any, any older person, uh, is to try to step back and take a, an impartial and very thorough look at what you're hearing all over the place. I mean, when you hear the same story everywhere, see it everywhere, read it everywhere, there doesn't seem to be any difference between the treatment of this story among different outlets. Uh, it's very unlikely that that happened organically. I mean, that's what propaganda needs to do. It needs to assail you from every possible standpoint. It has to bombard you from all sides. So that even if you're not reading particular stories or, or closely watching newscasts, it will, it will kind of seep into your consciousness and you'll find yourself uh, echoing it, you know, as if you're under hypnosis. So I, t I tell my students each semester that this is not an academic subject. It's something more important than that. And that if they, if they try to do this kind of thing, uh, it will be difficult emotionally, psychologically, because 
you're being forced out of your comfort zone. And you'll find yourself making discoveries that if you try to share them with, you know, family or friends or roommates, uh, you might get some, some pushback, you know, because when you try to tell people that everything they've heard is actually false or half true, uh, they, they tend to get angry, all right? Now, I say all this at the beginning of each semester. And finally, what I say is, I say this all semester, you're going to hear me say things that are shocking, or rather, you're going to hear me mention evidence of things that are shocking. I want you not to believe a single word I say. I always make that abundantly clear. Do not believe me. I'm not an oracle. I'm not here to do propaganda myself. I'm just trying to set an example of um, independent thinking and critical thought. Uh, so don't believe me. Go check it out. If you discover that I'm right, you've learned something. If you discover that I'm wrong, come to class and tell me, because I welcome argument in class. So, this last September, I was teaching the course, um, well, not as usual, because, of course, we were all under lockdown, and uh, I had to teach by Zoom. I said, uh, as usual, I, I always like us to try to focus on propaganda drives that are in the air at the moment. Look at the way we're meeting. I mean, this is completely unnatural. You hate it. I hate it. We're not in the same room. We're not a group, you know. Uh, if you want to say something, you have to push a button. Why, why are we doing this? Well, obviously, it's because of the COVID crisis. And the COVID crisis has entailed, it's been driven by a number of um, propaganda narratives, pro propaganda themes. And that is not to say they're necessarily false. I mean, propaganda can can convey the truth, or a part of the truth. Um, a campaign to get you to wear your seatbelt uh, in, in your, when you're driving is, is propaganda. It's an organized attempt to get large numbers of people to think or do something. So it doesn't have to be nefarious, although the word tends to be pejorative. That at any rate, the COVID crisis wouldn't be occurring if it weren't for propaganda. So we could we could focus on aspects of that. Uh, in particular, for example, we could talk about the mask mandates. You may be interested to know that all the randomized controlled studies that have been done of mask wearing in hospitals, uh, at the time I thought there were only eight, so I said all eight studies, there are actually many more than that, all these studies, this is the most rigorous kind of scientific research. Uh, all of them have found that masks don't work as um, barriers to the transmission of respiratory viruses. That's the consensus of those studies. Now, I, I would encourage you to read them. I would also encourage you to read more recent studies that have found otherwise, and you know, those are readily available. In other words, I want you to read all this stuff for yourselves. And I know you're not scientists. I'm not a scientist. So there are some ways that you can 
assess the soundness of a scientific study, even as a non-expert. Uh, when studies are first published, there, there are often scientific reviews, uh, you know, kind of like comments on Amazon, and you can read those. And also, I would advise that when a study comes out and making a newsworthy claim about masking, um, you want to look to see what school, what university uh, uh, sponsored the study, whose faculty did the study, and then check to see if that school has any financial arrangements with Big Pharma or the Gates Foundation. That's what I said. It was the first week. So a week or two later, a student emailed me and asked to join the class late, and I, I said yes, as I always do. She joined us, and um, the second day that she was there, the mask discussion resumed for a bit. Uh, one of the other students, uh, well, let me just explain something very quickly. When I was uh, recommending that they read those eight studies, I told them that seven of them had been compiled in one paper by a Canadian physicist named Denis Rancourt, uh, who did a very good job of putting these together, and it was provocatively titled, The Masks Don't Work. The student uh, started to attack Rancourt and attack his study, and, and it all sounded very familiar. Uh, this sounded, what he was saying sounded very familiar to me, and, and I, I asked him if he had read this column in Psychology Today that was a hit piece uh, by a logic professor at a college in, uh, I think, Pennsylvania. And, you know, if, if you did a Google search on Denis Rancourt's name, I believe the attack on him came up first, right? Which is itself a, a propaganda tactic, the way Google orders stories and so on. And he said, yes, I read that. And I said, so you didn't really read the studies. And we had a discussion of this, you know, the, the whole, we weren't really talking about the mask issue per se. We were talking about how you go about uh, re researching these things. And one thing you want to be leery of is um, stuff that comes up on Google right away. Because often the most uh, important stuff or controversial or dissonant stuff, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta go page after page after page and it's buried. It's sort of like a newspaper burying an important story on page 14, you know. Um, well, this was a Thursday. Uh, the young woman who had joined the class late was, was silent throughout this exchange I was having with this other student. And I, I think it was on Monday, I got a call from my department chair who asked me, um, I, I think I remember this right, uh, in a kind of an accusatory tone, if I had discouraged my students from wearing masks. And I said, no, of course not. In fact, I had said pointedly to them, I am not telling you not to wear masks, okay? NYU's rule is very strict all the rules are draconian, in fact, and um, I would never tell them not to wear masks. Not my call, you know, it's up to them. 
But um, I said, no. What I had them do is read these studies, etc. And I, I, one thing he said, very telling, uh, was, uh, well, do you think you know more than the doctors at NYU? Which I, you know, I, I didn't know what to say to that. I mean, I had read the studies, and um, I can read English and understand an argument, and um, all those very rigorous studies had found they don't work, um, so I said, yeah, I had them read this stuff. So he said, well, I'm going to have to report this to the, uh, you know, COVID uh, task, task force. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, the KGB. And I said, all right. All right. And I, I think it was he who told me in that conversation that a student was on Twitter complaining. I think that's how I found it out. And that same day, my wife was telling me that old friends of ours, from whom I hadn't heard in years, were emailing her, saying, is Mark all right? You know, something was up. So I went online, and sure enough, this student was tweeting, tweeting furiously uh, about me, demanding that NYU fire me, that I should be relieved of my duties. Huh because um, I was putting people at risk, etc. In fact, the, her exact words were, I had an excessive amount of skepticism around healthcare professionals, which was kind of bizarre because all the studies I was recommending were conducted by healthcare professionals. I think she meant Dr. Fauci, right? So this was, oh, and there was a stream of tweets. I mean, it wasn't just that. It was also um, screenshots from my website, News from Underground, which, you know, please feel free to sign up at markcrispinmiller.com. Tessa's on the list. Yeah, it's the greatest news, the, the greatest <laughs> newsletter ever. <laughs> wow. Well. <laughs> uh, I have, in fact, uh, sent out many of Tessa's really beautiful writings. Especially on those days, though. <laughs> thank you, thank you. No, I mean, I'm joking. It's, 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 I'm not joking about the fact that the newsletter is absolutely valuable and precious, and it kept me through this past year. I mean, it really, it, it was very, very helpful, and so thank you for that. Okay, you're welcome. Um, yeah, she took screenshots of things I put up, and she said, all the things that he puts up come from far-right and conspiracy websites. This is stuff like... The High Wire with Del Bigtree, uh, Global Research, Technocracy, Zero Hedge. They're not far right and they're not conspiracy. But this, you know, I, I really wish this young woman had stayed in the class and vented in the classroom. And we could have had a very, you know, fruitful exchange, even if she never agreed with me. You know, because the others would hear an interesting argument, could join in. Not so easy on Zoom. Um, but no, she, she went to Twitter. What had happened was she was so enraged by that class that she called NYU's bias hotline, you know, to report me for bias. And they quite rightly told her that they had no grounds to take action against me just because she didn't like something I'd said in class. So this is all coming from her. That's why she went to Twitter and... and you know, tweeted away. Now, this was, you know, bizarre to me because I often have students arguing with me in class. In fact, I relish that. 
because it, 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 it is a way in to a, a, a really helpful exchange. And if you can persuade somebody to just take a look at the evidence, they'll often, you know, uh, have a kind of epiphanic moment uh, and make a really important discovery. Um, but she went to Twitter and did what she did, and that's her right under the First Amendment. The thing that I, I did not find acceptable and still don't um, was that my department chair tweeted his thanks to her and wrote, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. Okay. Now, I'm in that department. I've been in that department for going on 24 years. And here he was saying that the department, not himself, but the department, were discussing next steps to make this a priority, and this was my termination. So I just kind of took my breath away. This was a public statement uh, and um, an institutional statement in, in as much as the department is an institution. I called him and I said, why, you know, why did you say that? Why did you say that you were making my termination a priority? He said, no, 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 no. I, I only wanted her to feel like she'd been heard, right? I said, well, it, does, it doesn't read that way, and I would like you to take that tweet down. And he kind of bristled at that. He said, well, I don't, I don't think I can do that. And it's still up to this day in April. This was in September. Okay, that happened. Uh, the next day, the dean of the Steinhardt School and the doctor who dictates COVID regulations to the university, uh, a graduate of the NYU Med School, um, emailed my other students directly without putting me on copy, uh, intimating, oh, first they said, we, we, we believe in academic freedom. I've learned that they all say that. You know, we, we believe in academic freedom, but um, I had given them dangerous misinformation. And the email included a list of links to what they call authoritative studies from the CDC, right? I had also asked my students to read those studies. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, the authoritative CDC? Because the authoritative CDC, until April of last year, had very publicly echoed the consensus of those studies that I first recommended. I mean, Dr. Fauci was even on 60 Minutes saying masks don't do any good, uh, they make you feel better, etc. right? And the WHO, the, I don't mean the rock band, uh, the WHO had, had, had made the same point very publicly with videos and so on in many languages saying, you know, masks will not protect you. And they pivoted in June, see? This is the kind of thing you look at when you're studying propaganda, you know? And if the doctor, the good doctor, had contacted me before co-signing that email, I would have asked him what he thought of the CDC's pivot, you know, to, to explain it. But there was no, no attempt to talk to me first, and, and that's the pattern that was set throughout this whole thing, as I'll make clear. Okay. I didn't even know that these guys had emailed my class and subverted me as a, an instructor, but some students let me know, and one sent me the email, so I have that. That was the second strike against me in this first phase of um, persecution, which is what it is. 
Then the next day, my department chair asked me if I would, uh, asked me in a way that was telling me, let me, let me say this again. The next day, my department chair suggested to me that it would be better for the department if I didn't teach the propaganda course this semester, right? This is the spring semester. I said, well, why? He said, well, your film course, very popular. So if you teach two sections of that, uh, the numbers will be good for uh, the department. I said, well, no doubt, but the fact is both courses have the same limit of 24 students and they're both always full. There's no difference in the numbers. Uh, I don't know, he mumbled something, but the fact is he was telling me not to teach the course. And strictly speaking, he has the right to do that as department chair. So I said, all right, I'm not going to do it, but I want you to know it's under protest. So I decided that I couldn't let this go, that this was really uh, an explicit and outrageous infringement of my academic freedom. Um, occasioned by the student's angry tweet. So with a couple of friends, uh, including Mickey Huff at Project Censored, I drafted um, a petition that went up on change.org, and you can find it there. And all it, all it asks for is that NYU respect my academic freedom and set a good example to other universities. But the important thing is that I made this uh, plea in the name of all the other professors, journalists, whistleblowers, doctors, scientists, activists, who had been gagged or punished for their dissidents, not just last year, although last year and this year are a kind of, uh, we're coming to a crisis point as far as censorship goes, but I said, you know, this has actually been going on for decades, you know, at least since the Kennedy assassination and arguably, uh, you know, the persecution of scholars during the Red Scare of the 50s would, would apply here too. So this is, basically I was saying that my struggle here is a flashpoint in a larger fight uh, to protect free speech, which is crucial, etc., or higher education, if we dispense with academic freedom, higher education will be nothing more than training for compliance. That was my petition. Okay, went up, got many uh, signatures. They're still coming in, well over 30,000, and a lot of eminent people have signed it, professors and others. And that was all good. Um, and I, you know, was just kind of... Um, going about my business uh, when about a month later, almost to the day uh, after the student had come after me, uh, I got an email from the dean informing me that at the request of my colleagues, he was ordering a review of my conduct. And attached to this email was a letter that my colleagues had written to the dean uh, 25 of my colleagues, so that maybe eight or so didn't sign. Uh, 
you know, they drafted this letter without talking to me. They'd sent it to him, and he took it and did as they requested without talking to me. And the letter was astonishing. Um, the letter accused me not only of putting everybody at risk by discouraging students from wearing masks and intimidating students who were wearing masks, both of which claims are completely false, and the second of which is ludicrous since I was teaching on Zoom and I've never seen a student wearing a mask on Zoom. I, I, I don't even want to go into how stupid it was. That was, the, that was only the beginning of the case that my colleagues made against me. They accused me of explicit hate speech. They accused me of attacks on students and others in our community. They accused me of advocating for an unsafe learning environment. And they accused me of microaggressions and aggressions. Okay, so, you know, not only was I um, putting everybody at risk, but I was, I was also um, accused of practically every sin in the social justice playbook, hate speech. This I took my breath away. Um, as many, many students have attested in letters to the dean and visitors to my classes over the years, including Tessa, who's kind enough to write one. Oh, that was my joy. Well, thank you. I mean, the, the, that caricature, whatever it was, bears absolutely no relation to the way I teach. Um, and so... Uh, uh, what, what, I, you know, I was flabbergasted, and I asked the provost what to do. She's a rational person. She said, talk to the dean. So I requested a meeting with him. And he was very vague. You know, he's kind of new to the job. And um, he said, well, you know, the university's lawyers told, told me and the provost that we had to do this, which was very significant, I think. And I said, well, what, what will this review entail? He said, well, we'll uh, talk to people. I said, well, what people? He said, faculty and students. I said, what faculty? No faculty have seen me teach. Uh, he said, okay, we'll talk to students. I mean, he didn't, he seemed to be out of the loop, you know. I said, well, in that case, I'm going to ask students, current and former students, to write and, you know, uh, with their own accounts of what it's like to be my to be in my classroom he said okay I said when will it end and he said uh, the end of the semester well this was mid-December it's now April and I haven't heard a single word from anyone um, nor have I heard from any students saying they had been contacted by the dean's office so I don't even know if there is a review but there is putatively one uh, there's a great nonprofit in Philadelphia called, its acronym is FIRE. It's the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And they, they take on struggles like mine. They defend academic freedom. And they sent uh, NYU's president, Andrew Hamilton, a brilliant, uh, detailed letter explaining uh, meticulously that there, were, there are no legal grounds for this review. Uh, and that he should step in and quash it. He ignored them. They put the letter up on their blog, and he still did not respond. 
no response, silence, been radio silence all along. Uh, so the university's lawyers claim that the dean had to order the review as false, which raises interesting questions at any rate. I went through this letter very carefully, and I crafted a point-by-point -point rebuttal. And let me say, by the way, that all these documents are up on my website, um, markcrispinmiller.com. It really is quite a story. I, I, I just rebutted every claim they made um, and asked for a retraction and an apology. Well, I got no response. Um, and then I sent a follow-up and said, um, by November 20th, this was a week away, I, I would appreciate your retracting the letter and issuing an apology. And of course, I didn't hear from anybody. Nor did I ever hear from the colleagues who didn't sign the letter. Um, so I decided I have no choice. Um, this is an outrage. It is all too typical of what's happening now to a lot of people, uh, you know, really all across the political spectrum. And um, I, if I just swallow this, I'll never be able to live with myself. And let me add that um, I have Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease, so that the stress of this uh, ordeal certainly didn't do me any good. In fact, I'm on medical leave this semester, so I'm not teaching those two sections of the film course. Uh, I, I found a terrific lawyer and uh, a guy who's really passionately committed to uh, free speech. And, uh, you know, we served 19 of the 25 who signed the letter. I, di I didn't sue. I'm not suing the um, junior faculty because... Um, you know, they don't know me, and I'm sure they felt some pressure to sign. Or maybe they were eager to sign, you know, based on what my colleagues had said to them about me. Because the whole case is based on sort of hysterical hearsay. And they um, got themselves a lawyer and filed a motion to dismiss. And I really would encourage anyone who's got the time and interest to read their exhibits to, you know, as evidence for their claims about me because they're fascinating. They're mostly email exchanges among themselves about me, really going back several years. So I had no idea that um, I was the object of so much, uh, you know, uh, disapproval and indignation among my colleagues. I thought they had no interest in my work. But um, they were indeed, you know, actively um, muttering among themselves about, oh, he said this and he said that. It's always based on what some agitated student had come and told them, you know. In fact, one of the exhibits is an email account of a discussion between the student who attacked me and a colleague who I think is in charge of undergraduate affairs and it's very interesting to read that and see how that student represented what I'd said in class to this colleague who then just reported it to, to other colleagues, you know. That's the whole case. Uh, at any rate, um, they filed a motion to dismiss. We responded with a brief and my affidavit, and they replied, okay? So it was a little legal lesson. That's the process uh, that you go through when there's a motion to dismiss. So at the moment... Even as we speak, the judge in this case is making his decision. 
and could render it at any moment. He could either grant the motion to dismiss, in which case we will appeal, or he could deny it, in which case we'll proceed, or he could ask for oral arguments. Now, everybody tells me that, you know, my case is so strong and theirs is so feeble that that it's like a slam dunk, but I am not that sanguine. Uh, I've been involved with NYU legally in the past. I spearheaded the faculty resistance to NYU's horrendous real estate expansion plan for Greenwich Village. And this was pretty successful. Uh, You know, we had an op-ed in the Times. We got celebrity support. Uh, It was quite exhausting. This is about seven or so years ago. Uh, And we ultimately lost in state Supreme Court on no legal grounds. There was no explanation of the grounds. We, we, We sued the city, not NYU, for approving the plan. And the court rendered a completely arbitrary decision against us. And the same thing happened uh, with a class action suit in which I was a named plaintiff uh, filed against NYU for mismanaging our uh, retirement plans, our pension funds. And there again, uh, the judge ended up making a completely arbitrary and unexplained decision against us. And then she left the bench to go to work for a firm whose chairman is one of NYU's trustees. So you see what I'm saying? This is kind of a mafia feeling to all of this. And, you know, since NYU does have a lot of clout, you know, it's a huge employer and owns a tremendous amount of real estate. Uh, They have a lot of power. And with a big law school like theirs, they have some influence on the bench. So... Um, you know, I have no idea. This judge could be a man of integrity from my point of view or not. Uh, but all I'm saying is that I do not believe that it's a certainty that, that this is going to go my way. And that's why um, I think it's a very important to keep the suit going. Because even if I ultimately lose, um, you know, I, I have to make this point as publicly as possible. So there's a, a GoFundMe page. Uh, if you just do a search on GoFundMe and my name and libel, you'll find it. Uh, I'm, raise, I'm trying to raise $100,000 for a protracted legal struggle. The money will go directly into an escrow account managed by my lawyer. So I'm not going to be you know, going to uh, the Caribbean for a holiday, much as I could use it. Not that it's easy nowadays. <laughs> right. I forgot about that. Well, I'm not going to, you know, charter a private plane and have myself snuck onto St. Bart's, you know, for a furtive holiday in the sun. Uh, so that's, that's my story. Um, it is quite astonishing. And I want to conclude, you know, before we have a back and forth about this with my dear friend Tessa. Thank you. That... Um, I realized, thinking this over, that, that I have sort of hit the censorship trifecta. I'll explain what I mean by that. There are now various methods for shutting people up, okay? The oldest and most effective, and now, at this moment, the most dangerous, is the accusation of conspiracy theory, okay? Conspiracy theory. Now... 
My colleagues accused me of conspiracy theory uh, in their emails, certainly, and in their complaint, uh, their letter to the dean. They said I, I gave non, uh, uh, non-evidence-based uh, theories. This was in a letter devoid of evidence, okay? And that's, you know, a euphemism for conspiracy theory. And indeed, over the years, students have come to me and said, oh, um, you know, what's his name? It would be a colleague. Called you a conspiracy theorist, okay? Now, we actually devote a whole week in the propaganda course to the genesis of that phrase. Because in 2005, uh, I was suddenly moved to look into that history because my book, Fooled Again, uh, about the theft of the 2004 election, came out that year. And both the publisher and I were really excited Uh, looking forward to the book's reception because it's very thoroughly argued and researched. This is basic books, a completely legitimate publishing house. And we felt that this book would kickstart a a much-needed national debate on the urgent need to reform our utterly abysmal voting system as we have the worst voting system in the developed world. And that's not hyperbole. I mean, that's, that's what uh, Harvard and the University of Sydney have established in their, you know, biennial review of election systems. Ours is 26 out of 26. It's terrible. Well, that didn't happen. The book was blacked out by the corporate media. You know, not a word. Uh, although I had often been on NPR as an interviewee, uh, they wouldn't have me on. They wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. And at the same time, this was the most striking thing, the left press, you know, for which I'd written for years, the left press attacked the book as conspiracy theory. Suddenly I'm a conspiracy theorist, right? And, I, you know, I thought, well, what, do we, what is that, you know? Why, wh- how, how did that come to be a thing, right? Because everybody uses that phrase all the time. I, I guess I must have used it. You know, people will often say, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, right? And then they'll say something perfectly rational. So it didn't take long. I mean, I went to the archives in the New York Times and the Washington Post and Time Magazine, and I typed in conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist. And I discovered that nobody used conspiracy theorist at all, and that conspiracy theory had been used now and then until 1967, when suddenly it was used kind of a lot and continued to be used more and more. It's now used so often you you couldn't even begin to count the uses. You couldn't, you know. And what happened in 1967? Well, early that year, the CIA sent out a memo, uh, 1035-960, That's online. You can find it. They sent it to all their station chiefs worldwide, uh, urging them to use their media assets to help solve the problem, as they put it, of a number of books uh, having come out and selling pretty well, questioning the Warren report on the Kennedy assassination. 
So this is books like um, Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane and Inquest by Edward J. Epstein, various books. And um, they, it's a very strangely written memo. It's almost like it's written in a kind of code. But the instructions are clear enough. They wanted their media, they wanted their station chiefs to get their officers' media assets to write a tax on these books and these authors uh, for their conspiracy theory. And it, it, it provided, I think, four or five what we would today call talking points to be incorporated into these attacks. And the one that's the most interesting, because you still hear it all the time, is, well, if there were a conspiracy of this magnitude, somebody would have talked by now. You hear that all the time. Which happens not to be true, because the Manhattan Project involved tens of thousands of people over years, and not one of them said anything to anybody. So you can keep people quiet if they're under military discipline. But beyond that, you know, people did did say something about the Kennedy assassination. They usually ended up getting killed, but I mean, at any rate. That continued to be used more and more and more and more after Martin Luther King's assassination, after Bobby's assassination, after Iran-Contra, certainly after 9-11, right? I mean, that was like the, the, the conspiracy theory jackpot. It's been used more and more uh, threateningly, especially since the uh, presidential election last year. Uh, the vigorous efforts to um, examine the results of that election, which I believe was incontestably stolen. Uh, and then the attempted coup on January 6th, you know, which was, you know, obviously pure stagecraft. You know, if you study the whole rally and the day and you talk to people who were there and you examine the videos, uh, this was uh, a kind of a psyop. All right, now, you hear what I'm saying? I mean, this is based on years and years of careful study of CIA practices abroad and so on, MI6 and all the rest of it. I'm engaging in conspiracy theory, right? the kind of conversation that I'll have in my classes, my students have. This is conspiracy theory, and now we're hearing the conspiracy theory is a form of domestic terrorism. It is now all but illegal to question the results of that election, okay? And we've, I don't know what word to use, degenerated to the point that many of the most prominent figures in the election integrity movement have dismissed all evidence of theft in this last election. I think the evidence is even more abundant and flagrant than it was in 2004 and 2000, when, as usual, it was the Republicans who stole those elections. Election theft has been a Republican thing all along, but this time it was the Democrats for whom it was done. That's my view. But... I'm wandering off the subject, which is attacking people who bring up inconvenient possibilities, inconvenient data, who propound a uh, troubling counter-narrative. You call them conspiracy theorists. And whereas in 67 and the years thereafter, that simply meant you were some kind of crank 
maybe you were involved with the you know, communists in some way, but usually it was a way to cast you as a tinfoil hat-wearing loony, right? Now it's, it's become uh, much more dire because the conspiracy theorist is a dangerous figure and must be stopped, right? So we think of Julian Assange and, you know, that kind of thing. Nothing is any longer beyond the realm of possibility. All right, that's one way to shut down dissident discussion and inquiry. And my colleagues hit me with that. Secondly, there is the social justice movement, which is uh, militantly pro-censorship. It speaks for a left that I don't recognize at all, a left that's keen on censorship, that wants to deplatform everybody, cancel culture, that whole thing. Uh, that's reached a crisis, and most of the targets of that kind of uh, attack are uh, on the right, toward the right, although more and more often it's, it's people all over the political spectrum, and now I'm one, right? And I've been active on the left for years. I've really been uh, out front on various issues. And um, I have to say I've probably been a much more public and active uh, radical than any of my colleagues who, you know, fancy themselves to be very progressive. You know, the accusation of conspiracy theory was strike one against me uh, uh, in that letter. Strike two was um, the accusation of hate speech, the charge of hate speech, the charge of maintaining an unsafe learning environment, uh, the charge of microaggressions. I mean, this is the kind of language we hear all the time now uh, from social justice warriors who use it to um, shut down any discussion or inquiry that they find um, inconvenient, disagreeable, outrageous. So instead of addressing anybody's points or engaging an argument, you just silence them uh, and, you know, treat them as pariahs. I mean, there is not a single example of my um, engaging in hate speech in any classroom ever. So what was the evidence that my colleagues had in mind? Well, it was primarily uh, a few things that I have posted online, which has nothing to do with my teaching. But they made a very big deal out of um, a short piece that I sent to my listserv, a piece by myself, that was about a Sprite commercial which featured a mother breast-binding her daughter. And that was the second example I had found of huge corporations uh, exploiting transgenderism to sell their product. The other, the other is Starbucks. Sprite is owned by Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is one of the most notorious corporate felons in history. So I don't think they were motivated by a concern for, um, you know, diversity or equality. So I, I raised the question, which I've raised in other writings, as to why would these powerful entities be uh, foregrounding transgenderism and tacitly sort of encouraging um, something like breast-binding your daughter. And I proposed that it may be part of a, a eugenics program, which um, 
I think today sounds less outrageous than it did when I posted that piece and sent it around a year or two ago because people are now talking more openly about um, these so-called vaccines and uh, Michael Yeadon, the former Pfizer vice president and uh, chief scientist, has lately been speaking very bluntly about the possibility that this experimental vaccination program on a mass scale may actually be intended to uh, effect massive depopulation. He has said this. And if you study Bill Gates's history and his father's history and their involvement with the Rockefellers, you find that population control has been something uh, that matters greatly to them. And Bill Gates has said, he said in 2010, that he'd like to see a 10 to 15% reduction in the global population, and that vaccines would be one of the ways to make this happen. He said this in passing in a TED talk. So, there are ample grounds for suggesting that the uh, prominence of transgenderism in the media and so on uh, could actually be part of a larger attempt to lower the birth rate. Okay, that's a controversial idea, but I have every right to espouse it and to expect people to discuss it because it's a serious issue. And elsewhere, I've posted you know, comments on Facebook passingly on two aspects of the transgender movement that um, I find very troubling and, and uh, in, in, in need of serious open discussion. One of them, of course, is transgender medicine. That is to say, surgical and... Uh, other kinds of uh, radical intervention in the sexual development of children, you know. That violates the concept of informed consent. These procedures are irreversible. I have always been passionately opposed to conversion therapy for gay people. It's like a form of psychological torture. And I'm no less opposed to these therapies, you know, puberty blockers, hormone regimens and, and surgery on people under 21 or under 18. Um, this is horrific, and uh, a lot of doctors agree with me on this. I've discussed it with some of them, and they lament the fact that they can't even bring it up. They can't even discuss it. And we're talking about the well-being of uh, countless young people here, you know? So I have strong feelings about that. Um, and, as well about allowing biological males to compete in girls' and women's sports. I think that's completely uh, unacceptable because it's unfairness. These are preoperative biological males who have the musculature and, and, the, and, the, and the bone density and the lung capacity and the strength of, of males. So when they compete in girls' and women's track meets, for example, of course they win, you know. That's wrong on feminist grounds. I object to it. I think it's misogynistic, and I think that should be discussed. Well, in the view of my colleagues, this is um, uh, uh, mockery and ridicule of transgender individuals. I've never engaged in anything like that. And I guess I should add, because it's of interest, that uh, the department hired somebody to do transgender media 
theory uh, for this academic year, and the candidate who's coming is the one that I voted for. This person prefers uh, the pronoun they. So when I learned that they were coming, uh, I emailed them a cordial welcome, uh, let them know I thought their talk was very good. Uh, we exchanged pleasantries about Northwestern, which they got their PhD and uh, I got my BA. And I recommended a, a book to them uh, about Olivetti and uh, you know their development of a computer. It was relevant to their work. So that's, if I'm transphobic, um, I have a funny way of showing it. This is, you know, it, well, anyway, that's, that's the second strike against me is that I'm uh, guilty of hate speech and it's unsafe in my classroom. And third, and this is the most recent uh, method of uh, stifling debate, is uh, the COVID crisis. Because, uh, you know, unlike conspiracy theory and hate speech, um, medical misinformation is costing many lives. You're putting people at risk. Oh, CDC is in trouble then. Uh, no kidding. But um, to people like my colleagues and countless others who get all their news from the New York Times and NPR and the Atlantic and the BBC and don't ever question it or look beyond it, uh, anything that contradicts what the CDC says this week and anything that contradicts what the WHO says is misinformation. So it is an abjectly authoritarian position. And it refers back to my chair's question, do you think you know more than the doctors at NYU? Well, he meant the doctor who advises NYU on its COVID regulations. That guy, in my chairman's mind, is like the oracle at Delphi on medical matters because he's an NYU physician. So anything he has to say about vaccinations, uh, which of course he is all for, and uh, anything he has to say about COVID and case numbers, uh, it's all true, it's all accurate, and uh, anyone who's not in that discipline has no right to, to any view whatsoever. Now, the fact is that what the press and those agencies dismiss as misinformation is more often than not life-saving information. When Donald Trump touted hydroxychloroquine, that immediately stood as proof that it's no good. You may recall watching him going on and on about HCQ and you know Dr. Fauci clutching his head in the background. It's a typical Punch and Judy show you know, for the American viewing public. Trump bad, Fauci good. Uh, they don't know anything about Fauci's atrocious history. He's never practiced as a physician, right? He's been a bureaucrat all his life. And he's up to his eyeballs in conflicts of interest. Um, but no, he says that there's only anecdotal evidence that hydroxychloroquine works. It doesn't work. You know, we, we need a vaccine, you know, obviously. So hydroxychloroquine was deliberately subverted uh, from the beginning of this crisis when it has actually saved countless lives. In those countries where it's available over the counter, like Pakistan and India, where there's a lot of malaria, the COVID death rate is surprisingly low. 
you know, despite those huge populations with all that density in the cities, you get sick, you take hydroxychloroquine, you get over it. Same in Saudi Arabia. It's been used all over the world. I know two people who had serious COVID and got over it. Uh, hospitals here and there, Minnesota, Florida, Texas, routinely have used it. And they have had no COVID deaths. You know, they didn't even have to go to the ICU because if you treat people with it early, you get over it. Same with ivermectin, okay? Well, these are cheap. They're not going to make anybody any money, but more important, they block, they block the path of that vaccine that's not even a vaccine, right? Because it doesn't prevent uh, infection. It's only supposed to lessen the severity of symptoms. Well, at any rate, I could, you know talk to Tessa yeah. endlessly about the COVID crisis. But the point is, that has served as the most effective uh, means of censorship uh, of, of, of them all. Uh, just as it has served uh, with incredible success at atomizing the uh, masses. Right? Atomizing the masses. Now, let me take us back to late 2019. Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting uh, published an article observing correctly uh, that 2019 would be remembered as the year of the protest. I mean, nobody can remember it now because everybody's got short-term amnesia. But if, uh, you know, someday historians write about this era they will take note of the fact that mass protests sprang up spontaneously all over the world throughout South America, mostly feminist uh, protests. And in Lebanon and, uh, you know, the yellow vests in France, the Bernie movement in the U.S., there was a lot of social and political ferment. You know, it was a little bit like the 90s when there was a lot of uh, spontaneous protests of the World Trade Organization, Right. And there's Occupy Wall Street, the Occupy movement, okay? Uh, now, the point that FAIR made was that the press would only report on the protests in Hong Kong. And that was half true. I mean, the Hong Kong protests uh, have had uh, assistance from the Western intelligence agencies. Therefore, they are... They are okay protests, you know, they're permissible and the press gave them a lot of sympathetic coverage. Fair did not mention the um, uh, green protests uh, sparked by Greta Thunberg. I think that's because Fair probably finds those acceptable, legitimate, organic. Although Greta Thunberg is, is, a, is a propaganda masterpiece, has been from the beginning. Uh, so the press also gave that a lot of coverage because the kind of green revolution she pushes for is very close to the Great Reset, actually. But, you know, that mistake aside, Fair's general observation was correct. So there was all this protest, okay? And it was organic, and it was spontaneous, and it was legitimate, and it was, you know, based on real social and political and economic uh, grievances, Right? Well, look what happened. All of a sudden now, people are afraid to get anywhere near each other. 
right? Pass them on the street, especially if you have your mask down or you're not wearing one, they'll kind of move away from you, you know, as if you're covered with uh, leprous sores. No, which is, I'm particularly happy that we're doing this interview in person, which I oh, think is... Yeah, such yeah. a pleasure to be, like, inches away from Tessa. So, yeah, it, like, everybody should see that it's okay to be next to another yeah, human being. Yeah, well, it is, it is. And I guess I should say, this is on my mind, especially today, um, since I watched Naomi Wolf's terrific um, soliloquy on Facebook um, about the vaccine passports... As she puts it, there is no coming back from this. Uh, once that happens, you know, once that becomes an established thing and you must have one, it's game over, okay? They will be able to know your every move. They will be able to arbitrarily claim that you're positive for COVID. They will be able to block your bank card, your PayPal account. They will be able to deny you entry to certain stores or to travel, you see. So, um, you know, as someone who still identifies as being on, on the left, in as much as I'm anti-war, I think corporate power is dangerous and must be curbed radically. I believe in empowering the working class. Uh, I could go on, you know. But I now have more, more nuanced position on things in general since this last year, as the left has become increasingly repressive and cult-like, and has focused increasingly on irrelevances like pronouns and statues, and on shutting people up, and on taking offense, and at balkanizing the left into different racial groups gender groups, intersectionality is a kind of euphemism for a balkanized left where there's no solidarity. It's really a kind of a brilliant uh, move that's been made by the engineers of the COVID crisis because it has made people wary of one another. It has made congregation itself uh, dubious and suspect and potentially criminal, you know, whether it's for the purposes of worship or um, saying goodbye at a funeral or attending a wedding, or whether it's massing in multitudes in opposition to certain policies, people are too scared to do it, right? And at the same time, now we're seeing this bizarre return to segregation, a voluntary return to segregation. You know, blacks only dorms, that kind of thing. Older black people can see this as preposterous because it was precisely the kind of thing that they devoted their lives to ending. And now under the, uh, the banner of social justice, which reduces everything to race and gender, no consideration of class, uh, it's impossible for people to get along, right? And uh, this is a moment when alliance is all important. We have to talk to people on the right, you know, not fascists, not Nazis, half of whom are government agents anyway. I'm talking about conservatives and principled conservatives, principled libertarians, 
we got we to gotta make common cause with them and just forget the red-blue divide, forget the Democratic Party. It's really just the Republican Party in, in drag, you know? They are both, you know, they are the wings on a single bird of prey, as Upton Sinclair put it. And our politics is a sideshow anyway, you know? I mean, now we might as well have a hologram in the Oval Office. Uh, I don't see any evidence that he has mass support of any kind. I certainly see no evidence that Kamala Harris has mass support of any kind. I've yet to meet a black person who can stand her. And she was the first candidate to drop out of the primaries, you know, with an approval rating of under 1%. And now she's a heartbeat away from the Oval Office. These are figureheads. And they have been figureheads for decades, you know. So it's time to get over all that. I mean, if we make it through this struggle against the Great Reset and biofascism generally, we can then discuss election reform so we have, you know, legitimate elections. Uh, But right now, um, we are at a very, very perilous moment. What's happened to me is just one example of a uh, vast crackdown on dissidents that uh, will either succeed or not, depending on how much resistance they encounter. And there is a lot of resistance uh, outside places like New York City. And for all we know, there may be resistance within some parts of New York City, but you, you can't tell from what you read or see in the press. So, You know, speaking of resistance in New York and speaking of right, left, and other nonsense, I went to the beautiful celebration of life at Union Square a couple of weeks ago, and it was fascinating because it was such a diverse gathering, and there was such love and just basic human contact and amazing African music and dancing and and hugs and all those good things. And they were also obvious infiltrators, you know, with Confederate flags and specific visual cues that were just, they were really trying to attract attention. And there was this alleged uh, Trump supporter wearing a mask with a flag up to this and trying to incite. I mean, he was not... The, the the infiltrators were extremely distinctive. I mean, it was very visible that they were not there for the for the reason that most people were there, and the speakers were diverse, and the crowd was diverse, and there was this love, and people were getting along, and it was going. You know, they, they had different ideologies, they had different politics, but nobody cared. People were just talking, and. Then, of course, the if you read Twitter a couple of days later, you would think that it was a bunch of right-wingers. And right. it was so... I mean, it was, it was the first time when I saw it with my own eyes. There was even some kind of a squabble over alleged racial issues, and it looked like they were two actors. I mean, I don't know, obviously, but it didn't even look organic at all. Right. So... And I heard similar stories even from the Capitol Hill in Washington where it was just a party, more or less. You know, my my friend was telling me it was like Michael Jackson music playing and people just hanging out. And then all of a sudden, boom, this this thing happens and nobody knows what's happening. So it is 
It is really fascinating and, well, fascinating and sad. And you out of people, you've been a dissident and a conspiracy theorist for longer than most of us. Yeah. So today is no news to you. It's just harsher. And I think they, like before they were just a few topics that people couldn't talk about and keep their respectable job. And now it seems like everything and it's unpredictable because all of a sudden maybe tomorrow you can't talk about, I don't know, wind from the north. And then somebody declares that it's a forbidden topic and then you can't talk about it. But the moment is indeed dire. And what I think about a lot, and it just so happens you, that I had a lot of questions, you preemptively answered most of them. Maybe it's because we talked before, maybe because we think similarly in, on many topics. But what I, what I don't want to happen is further splits because historically, if we look at how all bad things won, that was by divide and conquer. Absolutely. And we as human beings, we all have egos, we all have our preferences, and I personally do not know any one human being on this planet with whom I agree on absolutely everything. Like, right. not one. And there are a few who I respect deeply and I would do anything for them. And, you know, still, everybody has their own unique perspective. So I think that if we expect people to agree on us with most of our talking points and only then we're friends and only then we respect them or we treat them well then we're not going to get anywhere we might as well just give up now and you know just get our yoke and just be prepared for the life of slavery for generations to come so if we're going to fight with each other so i think that the most important thing we can do, and that is my feeling, I, I, it's not an answer, it's not universal, but this is how I feel strongly about it right now, is that what we really have to work on is our own internal integrity and treating others with respect, genuinely, and trying to see their soul and trying to see their perspective. And granted, yes, they're insiders, and there are people who are extremely aggressive or disrespectful, then I guess you ignore them. But if... Nobody, if, if somebody is not trying to undermine you explicitly, then you might as well just see their soul and try to cooperate with them and try to find common grounds because what we're up against is too dangerous and it's too big. And they have the money and they have the power, they have the media, they can bribe anybody. And we just really have to seek alliances and seek friendships and cooperation in something that goes way beyond politics or any of those things. It's Indeed. existential, philosophical, and theological. However, you know, theology is a complicated issue, but existential and spiritual. So I don't see any other way, honestly. And I think that the way nature works, the way life works, is what people do. We try to be our best selves. We try to act with integrity. We try to be brave. And then nature takes care of the rest. I mean, we just try to do our best and hope that the universe will help us because each single one of us is too small to tackle any of that. Yeah. The great reset and the, and the censorship and all those abuses against the environment and now with the nanoparticles and the smart dust and this pollution is unthinkable. I mean, when you think about it, there's no way to solve it. I mean, how do you solve it? You don't know. But I think that nature has wisdom and we just have to do our best right now and not fight with each other. Amen. That's absolutely true. Divide and conquer has been the primary weapon 
uh, in the imperial playbook since the Romans, if not even earlier. You, you get people fighting each other instead of yourself, right? Because they outnumber you. So you distract them, right? And uh, the red-blue thing is a distraction. The left-right thing is a distraction. Just as I saw, mm-hmm. I, I came late to the rally in unions where I missed all the beauty. I was there toward the end and I saw this uh, suspicious-looking f- face-off between a, you know, a, a white and a black uh, attendee, you know. And um, there was no media present, but if, if there had been, it would have gotten all, all the coverage and apparently that kind of thing did get noted on Twitter. They have this kind of thing down, you know. They know how to weaponize protest, basically. You know, the BLM protests were uh, encouraged and blessed and, and given weird exemption from the COVID rules, you know, because the cause was righteous. I guess the virus took a vacation. It's completely irrational. But those were okay. Greta Thunberg's uh, protests, perfectly okay. Tons of coverage. I mean, when you see that, you know that the fix is in and that, that this is all theater, right? But you try to mount your own organic grassroots protest, uh, you are depicted as a a certain kind of alt-right menace, and there will inevitably be actors, cops, you know, sent in to disrupt and to infiltrate, and it's very, very hard to deal with that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, you know, again, you read the history of the FBI and the CIA and and the KGB. And the KGB, indeed. <laughs> um, you, 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 you ha- you're more open to a certain kind of uh, skepticism when you watch things like Charlottesville, you know. Um, the purpose of all this is to divide us. And 2020 was a year not only of vast immiseration of countless people, really cruel uh, murderous policies, but also, I think, a year of unprecedented divisiveness. And um, it wasn't only Trump and his side that was divisive. You know, the New York Times similarly uh, sees the, you know, uh, that other half of the population as a bunch of, uh, you know, mouth-breathing Klansmen. And I know a lot of those people. And in fact... As Tessa says, um, the opposition is really very diverse. You know, we have to think of ways to um, to overcome. You know, which is a real challenge when most of our communications are online. It's all under surveillance. And the problem, too, is that figures capable of unifying the population have a way of getting killed, okay? You know, I'm, I'm co-producer of this documentary series. Uh, it's very ambitious. It's been in the works for some time. It's called Four Died Trying, and it's about the killings of JFK, Malcolm, King, and Bobby, and mainly about the reasons why they were killed. Somewhat about the, you know logistics of each killing and the questions around them and so on. And what you discover is 
that all four of them, even Malcolm, uh, after he, his uh, transcendence of what he considered to be his racist uh, past in the nation of Islam and before, all four of them were in various ways uh, unifying figures. JFK would have swept to re-election over Barry Goldwater, and he had a lot of support. People really liked his peace program, you know, over which he was murdered. But they didn't want him to be reelected. They would never have allowed that, never in a million years. Uh, he was really a dead man, you know, because he was um, upending way too much and disturbing uh, interests of way too much power for him to be allowed uh, another four years according to the will of the electorate. Malcolm uh, was, his, his unification had more to do with people in favor of civil rights in this country with um, Afri independent African nations and was working very hard to put American racism on the table uh, at the UN, which would have shown a spotlight on it, a global spotlight on it. And in the propaganda war with the Soviet Union, that couldn't be allowed because the Soviets were always naturally pointing to racism in the US as an example of how hypocritical the West was in yakking about freedom and equality all the time. That couldn't be allowed to happen. King was not marked for ex extermination uh, until he moved away from an exclusive focus on the civil rights struggles in the U.S., primarily the South, and criticized the war in Vietnam, which he did at Riverside Church uptown here, a year to the day before he was gunned down. And even more threateningly, he was organizing a poor people's march on Washington. Okay, this would not be a black people's march, this would be a poor people's march. So there would be people of all colors, uh, the deprived, the have-nots of all colors would have descended on Washington. Forget it, it wasn't gonna happen, okay? And Bobby Kennedy, uh, who was a changed man after the murder of his brother and was really loved by black people and by working class whites, right? Now this is the kind of unity that uh, was sort of smashed for good uh, through Richard Nixon's Southern strategy in part, which he used to pry working class whites away from the Democratic Party by identifying the Democratic Party with the unrest and the rioting in the ghettos in the U.S. And that was the beginning of a process that was accelerated under Reagan, who attracted a lot of white working class support by dog whistling various racist uh, uh, ideas or implications. Bobby would have been elected president and he would have, you know, quietly urged an investigation of Dallas, right? 
but he also would have continued the whole Kennedy uh, program of uh, economic development to grow the middle class. You know, they weren't socialists, the Kennedys, but they believed in, you know, fair capitalistic competition and small business and so on uh, to enlarge the middle class. They were also opposed to eugenics. This is actually a very important aspect of what made the Kennedys sort of threatening to certain interests. That unlike the Rockefellers and others who were always talking about population control, the Kennedys weren't interested in that. Uh, they thought that population could continue to grow if there were uh, adequate economic development to feed people. Uh, you know, countries needn't starve. And uh, I think the Kennedys would have been doubtful about the kind of vaccine cultism that we've seen emerge in the world of public health over the last few years. You know, sanitation, clean water systems, things like that could actually do more proper diet, could do more to make people healthy than, in, you know, injecting them with a million elixirs, uh, which is what, you know the medical establishment does now. So anyway, I'm wandering off the point again. The point is that you, you, if, if a leader emerges who is capable of uniting warring factions, that leader had better have tip-top security, okay? And there's a fifth figure I'll mention, falls into the same category, that's Fred Hampton, okay? Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, extremely charismatic, highly intelligent, great organizer. I saw him speak uh, when I was a college student. He spoke downtown in Chicago. He was really riveting. And um, what we understand about his appeal and what I think motivated his murder, I mean, he was executed in cold blood. He was shot in the head while he was asleep because an infiltrator had drugged his wine at dinner. Uh, was the fact that his following was biracial, multiracial. It was a documentary, uh, The um, Murder of Fred Hampton, came out in 1971. He was killed in 69. Just cinema verite, they followed him around, you know. And he's talking to these rooms of people who are black and white, right? All sitting together, and he's radical. You know, he's talking about capitalism in general. And there's one scene where two guys come to see him and they have a kind of um, black separatist movement and they go to seek his blessing and he is absolutely uninterested in anything like that. Tells them that is not the way to go, right? He was a real organizer. Now, if you watched the um, that horrific uh, movie about the uh, Chicago 8 that Aaron Sorkin made, you know, with Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman. and uh, They show Fred Hampton, uh, you know, who did indeed provide moral support to Bobby Seale, who was one of the defendants. But in this movie, Hampton is this sullen uh, sort of separatist figure who comes in with a cadre of scowling blacks all around him, and they sit in a little huddled group behind Seal. You know, it's a kind of BLM reimagining of what Hampton's radicalism was all about, okay? He was not a racialist. Whereas now, 
the so-called left is deeply racialist, you know. They uh, are increasingly uh, and openly, um, you know, uh, denigrating white people, implying that they're sort of genetically inclined to white supremacy. And, you know, in various kinds of programs nationwide, whites are openly excluded in a way that would be illegal or recognized as illegal if it were the other way around. So that's just an inversion of the old racist model. And at the same time, this left fetishizes black people. You know what I mean? It's like black people are accessories on their outfit. They are signs of one's virtuousness, which I find very patronizing. And I've noticed increasingly throughout the media that there are these very pointed celebrations of black writers or black filmmakers or black musicians, which is, if you think about it, you know, completely racist because they're not just regarded as musicians and novelists and artists and so on, right? They are black this, they are black that, they are black this. And the New York Times now capitalizes black. So again, it's fetishizing a certain race and using it to symbolize one's own goodness, you know, which is, um, it's belittling, actually, you know, although seemingly uh, 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 based on a drive for, you know, justice and equality and so on, it just maintains divisions and it still, you know, separates black people in a way. It puts them in a kind of ghetto, although now it's a very attractive ghetto, you know. But um, it's the racialism of the left that, that, you know, is one of the things that makes me feel like it's, it's become an alien movement because it's, it's really, it's like a cult, if you know what I mean. Well, I think about the Soviet Union, for example, and their propaganda where every building would have signs at, at the roof talking something about you know, everything for the people, everything by the people, the workers are great, the workers are celebrated, the workers are amazing, the workers and the peasants, the workers and the peasants, the most amazing celebrated, and everybody was poor. So there was this great split between the propaganda and the verbal celebration and the verbal dignity and the fact that people didn't have, uh, well, I guess it depended where you were, but Generally speaking, people were very poor, the life standards were bad, and then the, there was no dignity in real life, other than from your friends, from your family, which is a whole other matter. So similarly now, I'm just thinking that the top, top billionaires who are staging this divide, including on ethnic and racial and gender grounds and political grounds, they don't really care about either side. They don't care about white people or black people or purple people or dotted people. They don't care about any of that. They, they're going to toss whichever figure they're temporarily elevating a little bit right now. You know, they, they're going to just toss them the moment they, they get what they want, those billionaires. And it's really tragic. And I think about the generation of my grandparents of the Soviet Union who genuinely believed in the ideas that they went through great hardship for all the communist ideas 
And again, I don't even think that communism is a real thing. I think communism is just extra monopolistic capitalism, and that's just a ghost. <laughs> that's not a real thing. But in propaganda, it was a real thing. And the generation of my grandparents believed in it. It was their religion. They, it was sacred to them. They had emotional feelings about it. They kept it until they were old. And then all of a sudden, they found out that they were lied to. Yeah. And that's the most tragic thing I think can happen to a human being when you live all your life giving great sacrifices for something that you hold sacred. And then when you're old and you don't have that clout and you don't have that power, you don't have that social impact, all of a sudden you find out that you've been duped. Right. And I just grew up watching the tragedy and I guess it really impacted me very strongly. So when I look today at the people who are, say, 20 years old today and they are deeply, strongly believing in many of those ideas. And you can't blame them because they're kids. You know, like when you're 20, you usually want to do what's right. And when you usually feel like you know everything, that's kind of just human development. Right. And the adults who are lying to them about those ideas, that's, that's a responsibility they'll have to live with. And they'll probably have great regrets. But then those people who are 20 and who are yelling at everybody and think that they're activists by yelling at everybody, then... One day they're going to be 60 or 70 and they're going to all of a sudden look back and realize that they've been lied to. This is, this is a horrible feeling. So I actually feel really bad for those who are not going to figure it out on their own sometime soon. Yeah. But One of the things that I wanted to talk about is another aspect of divide and conquer because I think that all we have really is unity and by that I mean unity between people who are on the left and on the right and also people who are in this whole dissident movement as of right now, for the lack of a better word, although it's a horrible, horrible word, I guess. But I think it is extremely important to not do any infighting and to really focus on the commonalities we have because I think that... Well, the moment is really so dangerous and we are looking at such a horrible, massive, potentially devastating for generations situation that if we miss this opportunity, then not only this generation, but probably for generations to come, it's going to be pretty ugly. And I think it's extremely, extremely, extremely important to overcome our individual hang-ups and preferences to some degree. And I don't mean sacrificing what feels sacred on the inside. Well, I actually mean the opposite of that. I just think that it's extremely hard to find a lot of people who agrees with us on every single point. Right. And each of us has different strengths and a completely unique and mysterious path that we cannot really know the path of another person. It's, you know, we're lucky if we know our own, right? right? So if there are some common grounds, even about this whole health response, pandemic response, if there's some common grounds, but they do not coincide completely, I think it is critical to get over our differences and try to find common grounds and try to find how we work together. Because... By dividing, this is exactly how every good movement on this planet Earth has been destroyed or dismantled or hijacked. And history is proof that it is extremely, extremely easy to divide people. Yes. 
And if we talk about like unions, all sorts of resistance movements, internationally, all over, you know, historically, different times of history, they only succeed to some extent at all if there's unity. And it's so easy to infiltrate. And obviously anybody with money and power, they're not stupid. They do everything in, in their capacity to infiltrate, hijack, divide, play in people's rivalries, play in people's egos. And it, it's also human nature because we all feel like, oh, I have figured this one out and how come everybody is not doing the same thing? Right. That is normal. And I think it is in, in part a sign of trauma, which is not a shameful thing to have. We all have trauma. But I think a part of human growth is just to overcome that and work internally on that and try to present our strongest self to the world. Yes. So. Well, that's absolutely true. You, you mentioned trauma, and that brings to mind uh, something that I think is really relevant to your, your point. We absolutely need to make common cause. Uh, we have to be willing to become aware of our own biases and um, accept the biases of others as long as we share the common goal of maintaining our, our lives and freedom, right? It is, it is that crucial. What comes to mind when you mention trauma is the way in which abused children or abused spouses, for that matter, are often um, self-protectively blind to what's happening to them or to what has happened to them. They cannot acknowledge it, right? They cannot take that step and say, you know, my mother was sadistic, uh, you know, I was mistreated. People have that kind of attitude to authority in this country, to the government. Uh, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do a thing like that. They wouldn't kill a president, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't kill 3,000 people by flying planes into the, those buildings. They wouldn't do it. You know, if your eyes are even half open and you've been paying attention, you're going to see more and more, you do see more and more and more evidence of a certain malevolent intent uh, up on high. People won't go there. It, it, it infuriates them because it threatens the very core of their identity. They want to think the best of those in power, right? The most astonishing makeover I can recall in, in modern history is the makeover of Bill Gates. I mean, this is really an amazing story. Uh, it was kind of anticipated by John D. Rockefeller's self-transformation into a benevolent figure. This guy was hated for his, you know, the Ludlow massacre in Colorado and his monopolistic practices. And he was regarded as, uh, you know, an exemplar of pure plutocratic evil. And after the um, big trust case against Standard Oil, they broke it up into different sectors. He 
you know, with the help of Ivy Lee, who was kind of a propaganda genius, uh, and his foundation, right, the Rockefeller Foundation, he was transformed into, into a figure of sort of paternal benevolence. So they published all these pictures of him handing out dimes to little girls, that kind of thing. And this guy was a real predator. And the whole clan is very is predatory, and they're just as, they're as powerful now as they ever were. Now, nobody knows that history. I mean, you have to take a propaganda course or something, or a, you know, certain courses in American history to know what Rockefeller did. Um, and it's what Bill Gates has done. Bill Gates uh, is, um, doesn't have an altruistic bone in his body, okay? Bill Gates, if you read, the, there's a book called Idea Man by Paul Allen, who was his partner in founding Microsoft. And, and it is, you know, I mean, written more in sorrow than in anger, a very uh, kind of a devastating portrayal of what Gates was like, you know, um, you know contemptuous, uh, intolerant of disagreement, uh, you know, extremely nasty, the tendency to bully uh, obsessed with his own money and, and he screwed Alan out of part of his share and when Alan got cancer they used that as an excuse to take more away from him. I mean, it's really pretty horrible. But, I mean, everybody knew what Gates was like and what his practices at the helm of Microsoft were. They were, you know, it was a textbook case of monopoly practice and the government settled with him. Know, and I would like to know the terms of that settlement. I don't know if anybody does. The point is that Gates managed through his wealth and the foundation to construct this image of himself, uh, which, believe me, was very carefully prepared, you know, with expert advice, that all of a sudden this guy is standing there in uh, pastel sweaters, right, and, uh, you know, with that Kermit the Frog voice, he comes across as this benevolent nerd. And they keep publishing, uh, posting these photographs and videos of him and Melinda, uh, you know, the great white huntress and, and this guy, uh, among the poor benighted natives of Africa. You know, uh, photographs of him administering oral vaccines. It's, just, it's actually horrifying when you look at the toll that his vaccines have taken in those countries. You know, India, Chad, Kenya. Uh, you know, his involvement with vaccination programs that turned out to be covert sterilization programs. This is something people don't know, right? The press would never report this stuff because Gates and Big Pharma have so much power. Now, this is all a way of saying that this kind of information uh, has to be more widely known. People have to know more about the history of eugenics, for example, you know? They have to know more about what's actually going on. And it's difficult to make that known when people are so defensive of their delusion that these figures mean well. I mean, most people on the left should have immediately called bullshit when they saw Mitt Romney and the Gateses 
and Jeff Bezos and uh, Jamie Dimon and Nancy Pelosi all telling us that black lives matter. I mean, they Whoa. should have immediately known that there was something wrong with this picture, you know, because Jeff Bezos, right? So Amazon, you know, Black Lives Matter, it was all over the place. You turn on, the, you know, uh, Amazon Prime, Black Lives Matter, a special section on black movies, you know, not movies with black people in them, but black movies. And that's Jeff Bezos, right? Okay, read some coverage of what the speed-ups at his Amazon warehouses have done to the workers there, and a lot of them are black. They have to wear diapers, you know? Because the speed up is merciless. They're keeling over. They're calling 911 repeatedly because workers collapse, you know, to keep up with the flow of goods that Bezos is shipping all over the place, thanks to the, you know, controlled demolition of the independent economy. So we buy everything online now, more and more. And this takes a tremendous amount of human labor because I guess Bezos hasn't figured out yet how to have drones do all that work, right? It's inhuman. And there are black lives affected by this. And those matter too, right? So, you know, this gets us back to the fact that black lives matter with all that plutocratic support and all that publicity, right, is basically just a brand, you know? It's a name. But what does it actually do? What does it do? What does it do for the black workers at Amazon, right? What does it do for the deliberate plan to vaccinate black people first with this experimental, it's not even a vaccine, right? This mRNA elixir that does God knows what to your immune system, to your cells. Why pick black people to go first? People actually take this as a sign of um, a belief in equality and, and, and racial justice. It could very well be the very opposite, right? Um, you know, they were black South Africans protesting they're being used as guinea pigs for these vaccines. We never heard about this on the left. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, if, 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 if they really were devoted to uh, black lives and their perpetuation and protection, they would be taking a very, very careful look at these vaccine programs. They would be asking questions about why so many black people died of COVID in our large public hospitals why so many of them were stuck on, uh, on, on, on ventilators, you know, which killed nine out of 10 of the people who were put on them. Um, I don't know if you saw that video interview with Nurse Erin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's astonishing. This is what happened at uh, yeah, Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, which the New York Times called the epicenter of the epicenter and ran article after article about the heroic struggle on the front lines of this hospital. Because this nurse, Erin uh, uh, Olszewski, went undercover there. She's a travel nurse from Tampa, Florida, also a military veteran, who volunteered to spend a month at Elmhurst Hospital and basically went undercover. They gave her glasses with a camera in them. And you got to find this. I'm sure I know that YouTube took it down. It's up on BitChute. Uh, it's part of the series Perspectives on the Pandemic, which is a must-see series. And what she reports, uh, that the hospital was like a killing ground, okay? They did everything they could to finish off these patients and keep, you know, new bodies coming into the, to the beds, you know? I mean, there was, 
there's a payoff for this. You know, for every COVID patient the hospital takes, gets a certain amount of money. She would keep asking, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that to this patient? And uh, she would be told, it's from on high, you know? It's really crucial to watch. It was devastating for her. Uh, well, you know, Black Lives Matter should have been all over that, right? Because it's, you know, in a black neighborhood. But they don't do anything like that. And then we find that various uh, BLM stars, you know, figures within the movement who are extremely active and attractive, uh, end up getting um, positions with the World Economic Forum. So, you know, we have to ask, what is this really all about? And it's hard for people who are smitten by the spectacle and filled with a sense of righteousness to uh, transcend that gratifying feeling and take a critical look at, at, at what's really going on with movements like that. Well, so many things to say. First, first one, immediate. I was thinking again about the Soviet Union posters when I saw, now where I live, there's this thing blocking the road because, well, that's another story, to block the cars. And people used to either break it or move it and their part, you know, broken parts were found frequently of that entire structure. And then on that structure, they wrote Black Lives Matter, speed limit five miles an hour. And now it's standing. And well. it is really preposterous. It is really hypocritical and it is really insidious. And undoubtedly, I mean, who would in their right mind, I mean, black lives obviously matter. They obviously matter. But what does it have to do with... It is the same thing as the Soviet posters with the happy workers and happy peasants and everybody being poor and undignified. So that is, that is one thing. And then uh, another thing I completely forgot, now with the cat, with all that attention. <laughs> She's ready for her close-up. Oh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely important what I was thinking, but I guess... <laughs> well... That's attractive. Yes. <laughs> Can I say something now? Yes. Uh, I mentioned Denis Rancourt before, who did the compilation of uh, studies of you know, the, the uh, ineffectiveness of mask wearing. Earlier than that, he wrote a brilliant uh, essay uh, noting the correlation between the rise of race and gender-oriented study in universities and not just universities, but, you know, the, the sort of cult of diversity uh, gaining ground throughout the government and corporations. He found a correlation between that trend and the progress of neoliberal policies throughout the world. And those policies have been having an absolutely catastrophic effect on, say, Africa, in particular, right? Where, you know, Gates is pushing his green agricultural initiatives and destroying independent farming. And, this, you know, you're using, you know, toxic chemicals like Monsanto, the same in South America. His, his thesis is that this kind of ideology uh, suffused throughout the culture here gives has given us a kind of false sense of the 
the rectitude and the um, the liberal mindedness of of our own system at the very same moment that it's actually destroying countless black lives and other lives of color, you know? So it, it contributes to this illusion that the authorities are, are benign, that they believe in equity and, and, and diversity, when in fact the economic system that they all serve is, is having a, a really destructive effect on the lives of the world's poor, you know, most of whom are people of color. So there's a, there's a real disjunction between what people think uh, is going on and what is, what is actually going on. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And, and I, rem- I actually remembered the other two things that I wanted to oh, say. Good. One, I noticed that purely on a sensory level years ago when I was doing Tibetan studies and I went to a conference on Tibetan studies in Beijing. And being a scholar of... Tibetan language and history, I was aware of the conquest and the fairly devastating effect, well, extremely devastating effect it had on the people. And I know that people are grieving because I went to Tibet and I spoke the language and I spoke to the people. And the majority of people I spoke with, they're really grieving this situation. And so at the same time, I was at the conference, it was in Beijing, and obviously we're talking about friendship of people and the progress and the roads they built. And, and as I, I, I was sitting there, I felt like it, I really wanted to believe that because the story of conquest and bloodshed and devastation and abuse and oppression, that's not a very, I mean, it, it's a bothersome story. So when they talk about friendship of people and everything happy and everything is wonderful, they're building those roads. And... Like, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe, maybe my idea was wrong. Maybe it is really that rosy. Maybe it's wonderful. And then I almost like slapped myself. They're like, no, 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 no. You should know better. I mean, like, you know, history. But then I sit there and they keep talking and it's, you know, repetitive and friendship of people and roads and progress and future and all that. And, and again, I like fall asleep. I think, oh, maybe that is it. And it actually takes work to resist that. And that was my own discovery out of, because no, nobody was teaching me to do that. I was just sitting there and feeling how my body was reacting to that speech. And yeah. I was like, wow, so interesting. So I, I registered that. And from that point on, I was trying to resist it. And it's not that it's necessarily easy. Even recently, I, with all of my views about the health response, quote unquote, and how, how much lying we've been dealing with and how... Propaganda was just horrifying in the past year. Nonetheless, on some topic that I have a strong opinion on, I watched some CNN interview, and after 15 minutes, or even 10, 15 minutes of watching it, I started doubting myself because mm-hmm. I was feeling like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just wrong. Maybe I just, maybe, you know, like after after just 10 or 15 minutes, and then I turned it off and I, you know, I took a breath and I was like, okay, so. No, I mean, like, forget about it. But, and then a friend of mine called me, who kind of shares my view on this pandemic response, and then he called me because he went to lunch with some friends, and they were of a different view, and he called me and he said, oh, do you think I'm crazy? Do you think, do you think I'm just all wrong about it? And I said, no, 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 you're not crazy. Like, you're not crazy, you're fine. But human body reacts this way because it's really hard 
to be in the minority in a group in any kind of echo chamber. And that's physiological reaction. And yeah. then another story that I have, I, as a musician, some, you know, maybe like seven, eight years ago, maybe a little earlier than that, I decided to study marketing because if you're an artist, everybody tells you you have to study marketing because you have to market yourself and it's important. And so I went to study marketing and I studied it in depth. And it helped me a lot in many ways, including I actually did study fear-based marketing. and Fear-based? Fear-based marketing. And... It is, I have a really interesting story. So there's this guy, Frank Kern, who is, who was selling black hat marketing, like fear-based marketing system. And, you know, when you are in those circuits, then it's all those webinars by all different marketing gurus and, you know, they all sell product. And some of it is interesting, you know, some of it is very interesting education. But Frank Kern was one of those people selling this stuff. So I got on a webinar with the thought, I'm not going to buy it. I despise that shit. I'm not going to buy it. I absolutely, I don't want it. I'm just going to check it out. Well, five, ten minutes late, I bought it. <laughs> and, I, and it wasn't cheap. Yeah. And I bought it. And then a few seconds later, after you know, I gave my credit card and everything, I was like, what didn't just happen? Like, I, and I knew that I was not going to buy it. So, and then I, I actually read some of it, and then I didn't like it as I thought, and then I returned it. But... That actually happened, and so I, ha I, don't, I don't think it's fair to blame people for going for it, because I think that without prior experience and without a very acute and distinct feeling that if you go for it, then, then it's just really not going to end well, then there's no incentive. Uh, incentive. Oh, sure. And everybody learns. <laughs> and for once, I had a relationship that was abusive. I, I was in a very, very genuinely severely abusive marriage. And I went through this entire thing where I had no expectations of that happening. I did not associate myself with a demographic where it could happen because I thought I was educated, I was smart, I had a good job. I, you know, I was completely, I was checking all the marks. And... I had no idea how to deal with it. I did not want to accept it. I was in denial until it was really, really, really impossible to deny. It was dangerous. And therefore, it actually helped me to deal with this health response. Mm -hmm. Because when I saw these signs of abuse coming at me and waving at me and like coming, from, coming at me from television and the internet, and I recognized them. I thought, oh... Wait a second. When there's a bully, when they're trying to bully you, if you give them something, what happens next? Do they stop? Actually, no. Right. It's not like they go, We've, okay, thank you very much. We've abused you this much. We're going to stop now. Thank you. We're going to leave you alone. This is exactly what doesn't happen. So that kind of inspired me to be vocal and to talk about my feelings and my views on that because I figured, okay, I could be afraid and then what? then they're just going to take more, then they're going to want to take more, and they're going to ask for more, and there's no end to that. So for that reason, I became vocal. But without that experience, I think everybody, when they are abused very explicitly for the first time, they have no idea how to deal with it. And the easiest thing is to be in denial. So for that reason alone, I think it's really best to not yell at the people who even completely believe the health response because, I mean, I mean, so that's their perspective, that's their feeling. On their terms, the universe is going to, to, to show them, that, them what's what. And it's good to talk, it's good to be vocal, it's good to be 
to, to be honest to your own voice, but yelling at others usually doesn't do much. It, it, it doesn't. <clears throat> it's counterproductive. <clears throat> you can't you can't yell yell at people and and get them to see reason uh, when your own approach to them is sort of unreasonable. I mean, what you're describing is is um, it's very interesting that you you first went to Tibet and then you went to the uh, no 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 I first went to Beijing and then I went again to Beijing and to Tibet yeah okay so. You had been to Tibet when you... No, when when I was at that conference, it was before I went to Tibet. But okay. I was also, I was studying it, and that was the mainstream perspective in Tibetan studies, actually. That there was an invasion, and there was all this horror happening. And interestingly, on a topic that has nothing to do with much we've talked about right now, right now there's this whole development where among the generation of people who consider themselves Marxist in the West right now, it's now extremely fashionable to say that it wasn't really an invasion and they were building the roads and progressing the progress. Yeah, that and sounds typical. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, so that that's the kind of thing that wakes people up, okay? Um, I mean, you talked before about the generation of your grandparents being true believers until a very late moment when they mm-hmm. could not any longer sustain the illusion because all the material reality around them was contradicting it. And something similar to that happened with the Great Depression. When, you know, after the 20s, which was this era of frenetic speculation and and the stock market and everybody thought it was possible to get rich very easily and there was all kinds of pro-capitalist propaganda. You know, we've all seen that famous billboard, there's no way like the American way with a happy family at the wheel of a car. Uh, Well, when everything crashed uh, and all of a sudden a third of a nation was, you know, on bread lines and in poverty and people were really desperate and scared, that was a moment of great um, enlightenment for a lot of Americans uh, who now understood that, you know, before... uh, like their experience of World War One, they believed all the lies about the the Hun and, and the atrocities, and they signed up to go fight, and they you know bought Liberty Bonds. They believed it, and then gradually over the course of the twenties, all these articles started coming out, mainstream outlets, saying you know uh, this is what we did. Like articles by propagandists, kind of confessing that they had made this stuff up, and it dawned on people that. Our side does propaganda too. And when the Depression hit and all those rosy visions of what life would be like under capitalism went right down the drain, it kind of radicalized a lot of people. Um, I mean, it was uh, an era of uh, you know, widespread involvement in leftist groups and people romanticized communism and you know, joined the party. Uh, it, it was you know, relatively speaking, a promising moment when people could see that propaganda actually comes from our side. It's not something the enemy only does, but our government does it. Our banks do it. The advertisers do it. And there was a new skepticism toward advertising. So the point here is that, you know, that's a remote historical example, but people generally will wake up if there's a sufficiently dramatic contradiction of what they've been told that they encounter in their own lives, you know? 
I mean, it often takes a tragedy for this to happen. You know, the parents of vaccine-injured children have this experience. You know, they're told all this stuff about the shots and how benign they are and how necessary they are. They give their the kid gets vaccinated and they see with their own eyes a complete decline. Sometimes the kid dies or goes into a, 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 a sort of a funk and a fever and then is never the same after this. Thousands and thousands and thousands of parents have had this experience only to be told by doctors it was a coincidence, right? Well, that's, that's a moment that radicalizes people. Uh, the left has no interest in this, but that population that's seen with its own eyes the truth of a certain situation, when the propaganda collapses, right, when the contrast is just too great, the propaganda can never be restored. It can never work again. And that raises an interesting question about this current moment. When the mendacity of the media, the dishonesty, is so obvious uh, to so many people, it isn't just Republicans, that, you know, the coverage by the New York Times is often so false and so misleading. And with the Internet, you know, so many people know it. That what one wonders what this crisis is going gonna, is gonna to become, you know? How is it going to end? I mean, how far away from reality can the media drift, you know, before there, there's some kind of explosion? I, 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 I don't know what it is I could imagine, but um, I think this is sort of an unprecedented moment in this sense. This is a crisis of credibility uh, that's um, very disorienting. Well, I think that censorship has a reason to be because right. the people with great powers and very, very odd plans for the rest of us, they are, they are scared. And I think they know that they, what they're trying to do is extremely outrageous. Yeah, I think that's true. And the way I think about it, I was just talking to somebody yesterday about it. The, what we're living through is a proper religious reform, and the religious reform usually comes with economic reform, or an attempt at religious reform, I would say, because with all great reset and restructuring and you know, transhumanist ideas, that is a religious reform proper, like mm -hmm. it has been attempted over centuries. It has been done upon the original people of this land and on most nations everywhere on earth, they have lived through religious reform and it's been typically extremely unpleasant. And then over time people forget and they adjust and they adjust their feeling to this new mentality, to this new theory. And they, whatever they have on the inside, they let it shine through, whatever ideas they have. Hmm. But I think it is truly a moment when we don't know what's going to happen either. So you're, you're basically saying that this technocratic program mm -hmm. is, 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 is a kind of religious reform. I think so. I think it is very similar to, say, when Europeans, and Europeans were not the only ones doing that, so I don't want to turn it into that, but, say, when Europeans showed up, say, in the Americas, then they brought a certain belief system that they said other people should adopt or else. 
That's true. And similarly, and of course the idea, they tied it to the idea of God, they tied it to the idea of better theology or the only correct theology, and that was the justification for killing and for stealing. And similarly, the people who are pushing ideas that are, in essence, technically transhumanist. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I don't want to use it as a slogan because then it gets muddy and then it, you know, but as a, technically, it is transhumanist, as in merging people with machines, singularity, and all those things. Oh, that's so, true. It's a kind of lunatic doctrine that these people believe in with ferocious zeal. Right. And yeah. they are, I don't know, it's a big secret and it's a big mystery to which extent they actually believe in it versus just use it to enslave everybody else. Because, for instance, let's take this whole immortality and singularity. So it's possible that sometimes they believe in it and they want to live forever, but also it's a really crazy idea. So if we extend that immortality notion, but what do poor people get? Because they obviously don't want poor people to live forever. So poor people can get that whole digital twin idea where you don't really live forever, but you get this digital twin that is a symbol of you. So kind of vicariously through your digital twin, you live forever. So this is literally poor man's immortality, right? This is a thing? The digital twin? Actually, like Alison McDowell writes a lot about digital twins. And yeah, it is a thing. And they actually re recently just, uh, there was a model coming from, well, World Economic Forum. They made this digital twin for Earth to experiment. This is, I hadn't heard this, this takes my breath away. But the idea, uh, the idea of that for right now is that you get a digital twin of a living form and then it's either used for modeling or learning how to cure you better, learn, like learning about you and experimenting with this digital twin to even test drugs on and things yeah, like that. Yeah, okay, I, I, I get it. Um, yeah, well, this is, this is what I think is in the works, uh -huh. all right? You know, Karl Marx didn't have any understanding of power Okay. I mean, he, he really did nail uh, capitalism as a system and its, uh, you know, shortcomings and its uh, kind of, you know, built-in self-destruction and all that. But he didn't, it didn't, I don't think, occur to him that those who lead the revolution can be corrupted by the power of uh, state dominion. And... He also had this teleological orientation, you know, assuming that there would be progress toward the workers' paradise or the dictatorship of the proletariat. When in fact what's happened is that the economic inequality on earth is now so egregious and the... the the caste of those high above us has so much wealth and so much power and the masses have so little power and AI has, has eliminated the need for so many jobs for human beings that 
I believe that the program is a kind of regression to a state like feudalism. I mean, I've heard the term neo feudalism. Mm -hmm. That's what I think Gates and the Rockefellers and Ted Turner and the rest of them want, you know. And it has kind of Nazi overtones because this talk about digital twins and transhumanism, you know, it, 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 it all um, recalls the notion of a master race, you know. Uh, so this is a kind of master race that's uh, cybernetically enhanced, you know, that these superior human beings with all these godlike capabilities given them by digital technology. Uh, when Gates is the biggest landowner in the United States and Ted Turner is the second biggest landowner in the United States and both of these guys are rabid eugenicists, especially Turner, who has been indiscreet enough to say he thinks the population of the world should be reduced by 80 to 95 percent, okay? They have all this land and uh, suddenly there are all these food shortages all over the world uh, that that huge ship keeps weirdly blocking the Suez Canal. You know, it's a choke point for world trade. Uh, there are all these explosions, in, like in Lebanon and uh, one in Britain and elsewhere, and it, it just happened to take place. Uh, grain storage sites or facilities, right? Meanwhile, these guys have all this land, huge herds of bison on Ted Turner's land. See where this is headed. Um, they want to save the planet. They want to save it for themselves. And they want most of the useless eaters to be exterminated. I think the reason so many old people died in the COVID crisis, I don't, I mean, all these governors and uh, authorities in Canada and Britain deliberately housed COVID patients in nursing homes, okay? That's either a sign of this weird collective stupidity or it's something else, you know? I mean, why should these people keep getting social security? You know, there's a cold economic calculus here. All these old people having to die. And uh, they're still in many parts of the West living in horrible isolation. I mean, people have forgotten this, but um, all these, uh, you know, elder care facilities are still under lockdown, which is insanely cruel. Nobody thinks about it. Well, you know, this is like euthanasia. So getting rid of the old people, getting rid of the black people, right, by giving them preferential treatment with these wonderful vaccines. Uh, it's, um, it's extremely sinister, and it's something I don't think Marx could possibly have envisioned, because it is, in terms of economic stages of the system, kind of a return to feudalism. But it's one that is weirdly enhanced by artificial intelligence uh, so that the remnant of the human race that will survive this will have been rendered docile and servile, you know, which is about as dystopian an image as I can imagine, you know. So, I mean, you know, to get a real grip on what's going on now, you have to go beyond Marx's capital and read the great dystopian novelists, you know. I, I see 1984 as a work whose brilliance just never ceases to amaze me. 
that he understood so much about the nature of these elites. You know, that when it comes to the crunch and Winston Smith is being tortured by O'Brien, O'Brien represents the inner party. Winston is disabused of his illusion that the inner party was doing all this for some reason, you know? All this repression, all this surveillance was for some reason, to some end. As for the Nazis, it was, you know, the triumph of a master race. And for the communists, it was the dictatorship of the proletariat. Always some, some end in sight. The greater good would be served. And O'Brien tells him, we are different from the oligarchies of the past in that we know what we are doing. The object of torture is torture. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of power is power. That's deeply chilling, you know, because they are completely, you know, disenchanted. They don't have any illusions about some program they're trying to fulfill. They just do it because they can, you know. And I, you know, when you look at people as insanely powerful as Bill Gates, you know, you look at his, all the ventures he's involved in, you know, blotting out the sun with some kind of metallic dust and uh, getting drinking water out of feces and investing in this horrible fake meat and trying to get people to eat bugs and weeds and online education, Uh, nuclear energy, he's also got an interest in that. Uh, that is his number one interest, actually. Oh, he said that is his number one interest before healthcare and vaccines. Okay, okay, all right. This you mentioned nature before. You uh-huh. made this really good point about how you know nature will prevail. Nature is essentially something that seeks a kind of equilibrium, and it's it's important to note that everything Gates does is an attack on nature. You know. Uh, His agriculture program is all high-tech. It's an attack on nature as well as on humankind. You know, you don't have to to dig very deep in Greta Thunberg's movement, that whole green movement, which envisions humanity as a pollutant. Do you ever get that sense? There are people, too many people, and it's too many people who are contributing to global warming. Right? There's no sense, there's no understanding there of the inordinately large carbon footprint of people like Gates and Bezos and the rest of them with all these mansions all lit up, you know, splendidly illuminated with measurable amounts of electricity and flying everywhere on private jets, you know. I mean, it's like the US military, which is the biggest polluter on the planet. It is not us. We are not the problem, okay? But it's a kind of combined attack on humanity and on nature. So I guess you could say that what the Europeans started to do to the indigenous peoples of this hemisphere, you know, that extermination, that transformation, that forced conversion to the religion of, of capitalism and Christianity, you know, that 
process has never really stopped and it now has eventuated in the, in the seeming triumph of these monstrous figures who are really trying to get rid of humanity as we know it, you know? Replace human customs as we've known them uh, with this weird new COVID etiquette and a state of constant terror of each other and this idea that nature gives rise spontaneously to these hellish viruses, right? When in fact those things are concocted in laboratories. Um, and the genius of their experiment is that they've got people believing that they're benevolent and they mean well. Klaus Schwab, you know. Oh, Klaus Schwab is like a cartoon character. Well, he is. I know it's like a joke. You think, are they kidding? He's like out of central <laughs> casting. But then, as I just, you may have seen the piece I sent out about his, his father. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. His father was, you know, I mean, they had a company that, that employed slave labor under the Nazis. His father was a, was a Nazi, and, and uh, Klaus ran the company. It's a very sinister company. I can't remember the name of it now. But it was, it's a piece called Schwab Family Values, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking about people with a, with a, with a Nazi legacy, right? And this guy is now appearing on TV and online selling the Great Reset. Well, it does, it does kind of sound like as loony as Hitler's ideal of, a, of, of, of an Aryan nation, whatever it was he had in mind. You know, all of Europe would be Aryan. Uh, yeah, God save us from these religious reformers. For sure. Well, yeah. Okay, our heads are the same size, at least. I don't think so. Okay. <clears throat> mm. Well, I think the good news is that that Schwab is going to fail. And I think they're very scared. I hope so. Well, the question is how long it's going to take. That is an unknown. And I think for that reason alone, it is extremely important for us to unite. Absolutely. But ultimately, they are human beings who wake up in the morning, who sneeze and go to the bathroom and have breakfast, they're not super human beings. No. And they're just like us, just with crazy ideas and a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And nature is significantly more powerful than all of them. Right. So I think that connecting to our heart and putting trust on nature and on the good spirits to support us, I think that's, that's our best hope. Amen, that's absolutely true. Uh, I'm always reminded of the Tower of Babel in the Bible, you know, that uh, it was this grandiose plan to uh, create a tower that would reach the heavens, and uh, it, it uh, came to nothing, uh, as these things do. It's just too grandiose. Uh, but we are going to have to be as active as we can to stop as much of this as we can. You know, the rollout of 5G... And Elon Musk's demented uh, program of surrounding the Earth with these satellites. Um, something has to be done. And I think the first step people need to take, and this has been implicit in what we've been saying all along, is that they have to just face, face reality and, uh, and see what's coming at them. You know, because so far it's a kind of one-sided fight. They have 
a very clear sense of what they want to do. And they have the resources to make a serious attempt at doing it. And it's rolling out right now. There is no confusion on their side. On our side, there's just a lot of denial and confusion and infighting, as you pointed out. Uh, we have to get serious about this, you know. Uh, we just have to drop all of our class and regional and racial and political and ideological biases just sufficiently to make common cause uh, against this. Because this is for, I, I hate to sound sentimental, but this is for the sake of our children, right? This is for the sake of the future of the planet. And... Um, you know, to go out into the streets of the city and see all these little kids with masks on, it just makes me want to cry. Uh, I can't stand it. Uh, these are decent people, as you said. They, they think they're doing the right thing. They're simply misinformed because that's, that's what propaganda does, is it, is it creates a kind of bubble that you live in because it tells you what you want to hear. It plays to your biases and your preconceptions. It tells you what you want to hear, right? And when people hear what they want to hear, they're not going to give that up without a struggle, without getting angry. You know, this is a little etymological tidbit that should be of interest. The word propaganda, which was coined by the Vatican in the early 17th century, comes from the Latin verb uh, propagare, from which we get propagate. And what it originally meant, it was a kind of a horticultural term. Propagare meant to make a plant grow by grafting a shoot onto a, a, an older plant, a rooted plant. Okay? And it's useful to remember that because it it, it helps us to bear in mind the fact that propaganda has to have receptive soil to grow in. In other words, you can't just come at people with a propaganda drive. It's completely contrary to their preferences and what they want to think. So that's why people like Frank uh, you know, uh, Luntz and these other amoral uh, PR practitioners spend so much time doing uh, you know, marketing research with groups of people, uh, testing different words on them to see how they play. So that will enable politicians to sell destructive policies that are going to hurt people by cloaking them in language that makes them sound like a good idea, you know. Like build back better, that's a good example. Build Back Better, which sounds like Black Lives Matter. It's not an accident, right? So these are sort of, uh, you know, wordsmiths. Uh, they're just part of this huge community of trained academic experts, psychologists and others, who are now at work figuring out ways to make us all comply. They're doing it with vaccines. They're treating vaccine hesitancy as some kind of you know, neurotic syndrome that they can overcome with the right language, okay? So... Just like wrong sexual orientation? What's that? that just like wrong sexual orientation of the past that you were supposed to overcome with just the right approach? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a conversion therapy, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the same thing. Going against nature, you know, is, 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 is really the, the program here. 
uh, here's the thing that's daunting to me, okay? And here I've been studying propaganda for, you know, forever, teaching it. And the, this last year has, I'm going to be completely frank, and mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of admit to a, a, a kind of a paradox that's been bedeviling me lately. I mean, I'm a complete believer in democracy. I've been fighting for its realization uh, f- for years. You know, I spent years working on the problem of media concentration, you know, which was starting to become really menacing in the 90s and did a lot of work on that, spoke out about it, uh, you know, edited issues of the nation with fold-out charts showing who owns what in these different culture industries. And then I switched over to election reform because it seemed to me that you couldn't possibly have a functioning democracy with a voting system that was built to fail to reflect the will of the electorate. So I believed in democracy and I continue to believe in it and regard the COVID crisis as a disaster in part because as Bobby Kennedy said to me in an interview, none of this has been subjected to any kind of democratic procedure. No proper hearings, no review, no consultation with experts on all sides. It's just been rammed through, you know, by executive order in most cases, certainly in New York, mask mandates and all that stuff. So democracy is crucial. At the same time, what this last year has, has, has demonstrated to me is something I already suspected. This has confirmed it. And that is that we have actually made zero progress as a species in, in resisting propaganda, in understanding propaganda. I mean, what we've been seeing throughout the 20th and 21st centuries is a series of very well-executed propaganda drives that people have fallen for time and time again from the First World War up on to the present. Prior to that, there were all these crazes throughout history. Now, this is classic, extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds, whether it's Henry Mackey, uh, from 1841. And he went through things like alchemy and the uh, you know, South Sea bubble and the tulip craze from Holland and uh, witch, witch burning. You know, all these sort of waves of mass madness that would periodically grip the Crusades, you know. Well, the Crusades, to some extent, that was fomented by the church. But my point is that what used to be a kind of organic eruption of collective insanity, right, that only a few people could see through and try to resist. Now, elites have learned how to induce those, right? And how to prolong them. And I hate to say it, but it, it, it doesn't seem as if we have really, as a species, evolved sufficiently to see through those sorts of things. Do you know what I mean? In other words, Mass perceptiveness has not kept up with the sophistication of manipulative practices. I mean, I I could put that, you know, a little more cleanly, but I think you you take my point. In other words, (laughs) propaganda study is absolutely essential. I used to think it was just media literacy, 
that, that should be uh, part of every curriculum in high schools and colleges nationwide. It isn't just that, it's studying propaganda, see, which almost nobody does. And there are a few of us who do it. And there are even fewer of us who do it by looking at what's going on in the real world now. So I guess we've come full circle because we were talking about my plight at NYU. Right. We, we, which is due to my teaching propaganda. And I think we agree that it's, it's just got to be done. Uh, if, if not in schools, then outside of schools. But people have got to wise up. And, um, you know, if they do, or if enough of them do, I think we can prevail. Don't you? Well, hopefully. I think it boils down to the senses because knowing about propaganda is one thing. But then again, you see it in, in the other camp. Right. And I think it boils down to personal experience. Absolutely. And the importance of personal experience. So good luck to all of us. Indeed. Hopefully we will prevail. Okay. Well, thank you. It was a great conversation. And let me give you a hug as oh, a human thank being. You. Because we're not biohazards. No, we're not. We're not. We're, we're benign. Yes. We are. <laughs>